You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. I saw an interesting article uh, just last week where a prominent Wall Street businessman, a wonderful family in his, in his early 40s, kids, the wife, they had millions of dollars in income, very prominent, suddenly threw himself off the 24th floor of a building in Manhattan and took his own life. You think about that, what a tragedy. I mean, he had everything that the world said that you should want to be happy, to be successful. He could travel, he could, he could retire, he could do anything he wanted to. And what did he choose to do? He chose to throw himself off the 24th floor and end his life. That's not a good way to go. My goodness. But what would make him do that? And I'll tell you, because I know, he had no hope and he had no peace. He had no hope, nothing to look forward to except death in the end, and his money couldn't save it from him. And all the things that he had, all the money, all the success, all the worldly fame, even a beautiful family, even all the money and the trips and whatever else, he could buy anything he wanted to, didn't fill him. And he was frustrated, and he was confused. How do I know? Because just 12 years ago, I was in the same boat. Now, I wasn't ready to throw myself off a building, but I understand because by age 36, I had achieved everything that the world said that you should have. I had gone to college and gotten a, a, a degree. I went to medical school and graduated number one in my class. I then went to University of Pennsylvania and did internal medicine. I went to Duke and did dermatology. I was chief resident, and then I did a fellowship in skin cancer surgery. And then we left and set up our own private practice in Cary that we owned, and we were very successful. I had a beautiful wife, children. We lived in Cary, which at that time was the Mecca, the place to be, where it was still reasonably uh, inexpensive to live, and everything was new, and it was just like everything you could ever hope for. But how did I feel after having finally gotten there? After all those years of, of delay and study and hard work, chasing the carrot, chasing the American dream, I'll tell you, I was depressed, I wasn't happy, I was frustrated, I was empty, and I was confused because I'm like, why isn't this doing it for me? What is wrong with me? And I tried everything. I tried hobbies. I tried drinking. I tried trips. I tried fancy cars. I mean, I did it all. And it never filled me. It never, something was wrong. Something was missing. And then on top of that, I'm watching my kids and family. And I'm looking at, at my perspective, which I was taught is that evolution is true and dead is dead. So when... My kids, they suddenly get hit by a car. Too bad, so sad. It's just uh, the way, the natural order of things. They're gone, never to be seen again. Well, what about all my memories that I had with my family? What were they going to mean in 100 years when everyone's gone? Did they mean anything? No, they ceased to exist. I reached a point where I almost wish I didn't live at all, that I never was born. Because I'm like, what is it all for? And I think that's what this man was experiencing. And what I'm going to tell you today is that that's the plague of everyone. And maybe some of you in here, but God has taken care of it. 
He works in funny ways, because what happened 13 years ago was we moved into a bunch of Christians. We moved into a street. This was our big house. This is about 5,000 square foot house in Cary, brand new, all the latest technology, everything you could want. And there were Christians right on that street, a bunch of them. And uh, they began to exclude us. They didn't want to talk to us. They didn't want their kids playing with our kids because we were the heathens on the street. Now, I'll grant you, we were a little heathen. You probably wouldn't have been wanted to be best friends with us. Did a lot of drinking, and I said bad words and cuss words and all kinds of things. But, you know, I was upset because I'd never been excluded like that before. And I didn't know anything about Christianity, but I thought I knew that that, that wasn't the way they were supposed to be. They were supposed to at least tell me about Jesus or that I needed him or, you know, that we, they could invite us to church or whatever. They said they were excluding us, and I was upset. I was mad. I was angry. And at that point in time... God was already working. Now, I didn't know it. See, the interesting thing, guys, is that Christianity isn't you finding God or you discovering God. It's partly that, but what it really is is God seeking you. He is after you. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second, but my wife's going to come up now and just give you the context of what was going on in our family. Now, I didn't know this was going on so that when I get into the story you'll have a fuller picture of what was happening. Now, be nice. <laughs> he was a heathen. <laughs> no, actually, we were both heathens. So, um, yeah, we moved into this new neighborhood. I mean, beautiful house. Um, you know, we had basically everything going for us, and uh, we moved into this neighborhood, and there were, most of them, I would have to say, most of them on the street were uh, born-again Christians, but when we moved in, um, suddenly we were kind of excluded. They kind of found out about us. We weren't uh, like them. You know, we didn't go to church, and, uh, but, you know, one of the things I didn't say earlier is, like, we really thought, you know, we were good people. We were charitable. We, you know, didn't harm anybody. We, you know, we did a lot of nice things, so we thought, you know, we're good people just like they are. And, uh, and, and yes, they did exclude us, and uh, it did hurt our feelings. I mean, we would go to, I would go to, like, neighborhood functions, and they would completely uh, leave me out. They would talk. It would be very interesting because they'd be talking about church and all the things they're doing at church and how great their church was, and it would kind of draw me in. I was kind of like, wow, this is kind of neat because the church I grew up in was kind of dead. Um, you know, they weren't reading their Bibles. It was just about church, going to church and leaving church and then living your life. Um, so when I'd hear all the things that they were doing and they had a little, they, they did have some kind of charm to them. Like I, it was drawing me in. And so I would ask them about, about it. And uh, it was very interesting. They would actually shun me. Like they weren't, you would think being a Christian, you'd, and, and you find somebody who would be interested in what they're doing in the Lord that they would be like, wow, this is an opportunity. Um, but they, you know, looking back now, they didn't see it as an opportunity. They thought of it, of it as we need to protect ourselves from this family. <laughs> so it, it was kind of like, it made me a little bitter. It made my husband very bitter, especially when they wouldn't let their kids play with our kids. Um, and our kids were only like three and four years old at the time. They would be pulling their kids away from our kids because we would, our kids were like the heathen kids. So anyway, long story short, um, Instead of like drawing us in, you know, they kind of pushed pushed us away. But I had that empty feeling, and and uh, it's interesting how God can use 
and they are believers. Like I've had friends, like people say, they are not Christian. They are not believers if they treated you like that. But they're just as sinful as anybody else. I mean, just, you know, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. And thank God he covers us for our sins. But, you know, he's still working things out in our Christian lives, things that maybe we have been, you know, that have affected us earlier in life and things like that. So, you know, we have to realize as Christians, you know, we're not perfect, and God showed me that in them. Um, but they are born-again Christians, and that, that, you know, we're just flawed people um, growing in Christ. Anyway, um, I did have that empty feeling, and God worked in mysterious ways because he could use that to light a fire. He could use their, you know, their, uh, I don't want to say sinfulness, but, you know, their problems, um, which were affecting me, um, not wanting to go to the Lord, it was affecting me, actually pushing me and lighting a fire under me because, you know, I wanted to learn more about the Lord and I wanted to fill that empty void. So God was working in other places like the gym, bringing Christian people into my life. Meanwhile, I got into a Bible study, supernaturally, it was a weird thing how that happened. I got into this Bible study, I didn't want anybody knowing about it, and it was a Revelation Bible study, scared me to death. And it made me actually even want to look more into the Bible. So I actually uh, started reading the Bible for myself. And that's what actually changed my life was actually reading the Word of God because growing up in church and going to church all the time um, really doesn't make you a Christian. It, it was reading my Bible that actually like woke me up. It was the Word of God in, going inside of my head. Um, okay, so I got to a group of friends together, heathen friends, and I said, let's read this Bible so we started reading the Bible together, and that actually changed our lives, and I actually became a believer through that. Meanwhile, Greg, okay, my heathen husband, <laughs> um, he would come home in the middle of me doing this Bible study sometimes for lunch, and he'd see me and like seven of my friends, you know, talking about the Bible, and he'd just walk in and think we were all crazy and weird, you know, just, but he didn't mind. He had no problem with me doing it. He just thought we were all weird. So they'd leave, and he would, he would mock me. He'd be like, so how is Bible study? Thinking, you know, and I would and I would talk to him, and I'd tell my friends, I'm very upset, like, Greg's not, you know, he's never going to catch on. He's never, he's never going to want to learn about God. He really thought he was his own God at, at points in his, you know, back then I used to think he, he was his own God. He made his own, he, made, he didn't really have any need. He was, made his own money, had a good life. He wasn't going to change. And so my friends would be like, as soon as he sees like how, how uh, God's changed your life, he'll change. And I was like, there's no way. And he wasn't like that. It wasn't until the, the, the Christian neighbors, it got so, the, the, the heat from them, he was so angry with them, it wasn't until then that it changed him to want to read the Bible. But meanwhile, I had bought this book, um, Evidence that demands a verdict from it was by, written by Josh McDowell, and he answers a lot of like intellectual questions that somebody who is searching is looking for, like questions even us as Christians are like, I still don't get this, you know, or I'm, I'm having a hard time believing this. Like Josh McDowell really dives into it and, and gives scientific information. He 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 has a very good thought process. Well, meanwhile, I'm trying to get Greg to read this book, and he kept saying, Yeah, yeah, I'll read it, I'll read it, and he would, and he didn't read it. And six months went by, and early on he'd go, just put it on the ottoman. It's in our bedroom. We had a little reading chair. He'd say, um, just put it on the ottoman, and I'll read it. Okay, well, six months went by, okay, and, and I just gave up. He wasn't going to read this. He wasn't going to read this book. So one night I was sleeping. Our kids were young. 
I go to bed early, and he'd be reading with the light on in the bedroom. And one night, I hear him going like, hmm, hmm, oh. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm reading this book. It's very interesting. And I'm like, okay. Meanwhile, he's doing this hemming and hemming and hawing. And, and finally, I was like, I was like, what book are you reading? And I, I look up, and I'm like, what are you reading? And he goes, he goes, I don't know. He goes, it's called um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And I was like, oh, he's reading the book. He's finally reading the book. And, I get, and he goes, I don't know where I got it, but it's a really good book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he read it, and, uh, and then life started changing. She was very nice. She could have been worse and told you what I was really like. <clears throat> Read the book and some of it's in there. Anyway, so I go to the Christian bookstore to buy a Bible. I'm trying to prove it false. I'm trying to show that the Christians aren't living by their own rule book. That's all I was trying to do. I didn't want to become a Christian. I didn't want a goody-two-shoes life. I didn't want to live like I was a little house on the prairie or anything like that. I wanted to show that Christians were hypocrites and they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. So I go into the Christian bookstore, I put on a disguise, because I didn't want to be seen in the bookstore. I didn't want anyone knowing I was in there. Certainly, I shouldn't be in there. So I put on a hat and sunglasses, I go in, I buy the first Bible I can, I'm sweating, I'm nervous, I get the Bible, and then I get home, and the problem is, you know, a Bible looks like a Bible. So how am I going to read it? Everyone's going to know and say, what are you doing reading the Bible? So I had to go back to the Christian bookstore, and I found a version I could put on my computer so no one could know what I was doing. And so I began to read, and I started in the New Testament because I couldn't, I couldn't get past the Adam and Eve thing as, a, as an evolutionary person. So I'll just start in the New Testament. And what struck me as I read through it, and this was a period of about over about two weeks, was the story. The basic storyline blew my mind. Now realize, people had said, you need to go to church. But it was always about the church. There was never... You need to know the Lord. He saved you. He died for you. He's real. You can have a relationship, blah, blah, blah. It was always about the church stuff. And the people who told me that, their lives were no different than mine. There was no evidence of the Lord in their lives. They didn't talk about him. They didn't say, you know, oh, I had this going on, and the Lord helped me through this this week, or I prayed, or nothing. There was no reality to it. And so when the secular person sees that, they're going to think it's just fake, and made up to make people feel better about themselves. If there's no reality, and it's all about the building and all the events, you know, you're, if you're me, you're not going to think that it's real. But what I found in the Bible was an amazing story. Now, many of you may know it, but let me just summarize it for you. That 2,000 years ago, God became a man. That he incarnated himself into a human being. The Lord Jesus Christ left heaven, added to his deity a fully human body and nature, but yet perfect and sinless. Perfect, sinless humanity merged with deity to create the God-man. What in the world is that? What a crazy concept. God walking the earth as a man, fully God, fully man? Did that really happen? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then it goes on to say that he was on a mission to save me and you and everybody, the whole world, from their sins. Right? For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son into the world that you might be saved. He didn't send him into the world to condemn it, but to save it. He's on a rescue mission. What a crazy concept. And, 
And furthermore, it says he did it because of death, to rescue us from death. I always wondered, why do we die? I remember at the beginning we're talking about this hopelessness, this fear of death. Why, if we're so highly evolved and everything's so wonderful, do we die? Why could any of us die today? What's up with that? You know there's something not right about it. Well, the Bible said it was because of sin, that sin caused death. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus came to reverse it to the way it was supposed to be. Hey, that made sense to me. I didn't believe it, but it made sense. Then it goes on to say that he was buried and he was put in a tomb and then he was resurrected the third day. Well, that's quite a claim to be resurrected from the dead. Furthermore, it it explained why there was only one way. In other words, if the penalty for your sin is to die, and you're all dying right now, even the little kids, we're slowly dying. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it the way, but that's the hard, cold truth. It taught that the only way for Jesus to solve it was for him to die in your place. But God can't die, so he had to become a man, so he could die. But one man's death can't substitute for the whole universe, so everyone who's ever lived, only God could do that. So the only way is for the God-man to die, right? God's death as a man can be applied to everybody. There's no other way to solve it. You can't be good. You can't be anything else. And I'm looking at this and thinking, this is just, could someone even make this up? You know, people attacked Christianity that it was invented. Who could invent that kind of a story? So it all basically came down to the resurrection, doesn't it? If he was resurrected, it's true and it's really important. If he wasn't, forget about it. Go home. We can all go home. Sleep in. What's it for? So I focused on that. Is the resurrection true? What is the evidence? Now, look, I can't just hear it from the pastor and believe. I'm sorry. I'm a scientist. I've got, you've got to give me something. And I thought, well, if God really did this in space and time 2,000 years ago, and it's worth all of eternity, and everything is on the line, then he is going to give me something that I can hang my hat on. Right? I thought he would do that, even though I'm not a believer in God. But I said, if it was true. And I was shocked when I looked at the evidence. The evidence, guys, is overwhelming. Now, the first thing I looked at was, how do I know that the Bible's true? How do I know it's historically reliable? Because if the stories I'm reading to get this information aren't reliable, and people had talked about all the errors in the Bible and all this stuff, but when I looked at it, none of that was true. It was the most historically reliable ancient document of all time. Anything that you learn in all of history in your schools that they teach as truth, Rome or Greece or any of these things about Caesar... Do you know that the evidence for that being true is far less, not even close to the historical reliability of the scriptures? Now, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Isn't that a little odd that it would be that far in favor of the Bible over anything else? And I thought, gosh, it sure seems like the only way that would happen is if it's really true and God was actually, again, trying to provide that evidence for us. But remember, I didn't want to believe. There was a part of me that did because I didn't want to die. I was afraid of death, but it seemed too good to be true. So then we get to the resurrection. And I looked at the evidence. 
What about the alternative hypotheses? That maybe he didn't die. That maybe they were just hallucinating. That maybe they made it up. That maybe um, he um, had a twin. I mean, there's crazy stories out there. Or maybe um, they were just hallucinating it. But each one of them didn't match up with the evidence. Even very strong evidence apart from the Bible. I read a book where a man showed that the evidence, even apart from the scriptures, is overwhelming and there's no other way to explain it except that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's quite a statement. So even if you doubt the Bible, it can be proven on the historical facts that Jesus was a real person who lived, he was crucified, he was died, and he was buried in a tomb, and that tomb was found empty. And you've got to explain the empty tomb that was guarded by Roman guards facing the death sentence if they let somebody out. And when you look at the explanations of people seeing him, the empty tomb, there's no other explanation than that he did it. None of them hold up. Because you've got the Apostle Paul couple years later, killing Christians, a religious Jewish Pharisee, some made-up story is not going to ever convince that man. What would make that man suddenly proclaim Jesus as God as a Jew who only believed in one God? Now he's saying a man who was on earth is God. What could make him reverse his story? What could make his brother who he grew up with say, yeah, my brother was God. We ate breakfast together. He wrestled me. He let me win. Think about it. What could make these guys do that? And what about the apostles willing to die for what they believed in? Lots of people blow themselves up, guys, for something that they believe in, but they don't know that it's not true. If they were the original inventors and this isn't true, then they did it knowing that it wasn't true. And people don't do that. When they're about to chop your head off, you say, okay, I'm out. But they didn't do that. They all died a martyr's death. What could make them do that? What could make them proclaim something that nobody in that day would believe? And you say, well, what do you mean? Did you know that in the ancient world, the entire non-Jewish people, which would be called the pagan world, did not believe that bodily resurrection occurred or ever occurred? They believed in an afterlife and all this stuff in the underworld, but they did not believe in that. They knew what it was. They had a word for it. But they did not believe that it happened. And the Jews did believe it happened, but only at the very end of the age. So if you're going to make it up, why in the world would you pick something that nobody's going to believe? You could have said, well, Jesus was exalted into heaven, or Jesus was God, and he's up in heaven, and now he can save you. But you would never say he was bodily resurrected. We touched him. It says he ate. He ate fish. I just, I just couldn't, get, I couldn't get my mind around it. Nothing made sense. Nothing could explain these facts at all. There wasn't one solution. And in fact, all the, the modern skeptic scholars, most of them who aren't Christians, by the way, be careful what you read, they don't reject it on the evidence. They reject it because they refuse to believe in God. But they admit they don't have another explanation. Watch the debates online. They don't. They can't explain the facts. But it makes perfect sense if he actually did it. It explains everything. So I had to come to the conclusion, he did it. 
I came to the intellectual decision. Now listen carefully, because there's an important distinction. I intellectually believed that he did it. I thought, I will go to church. I will sit there. God will see that I'm in attendance. And then when I die, I'll go to heaven, because I have a little tag on my head. He believes in his mind. That would be a good deal if all there was, wouldn't it? Right? You escape death. You've got hope. That's not all there is. Some of you may be stuck in that point right now. Yeah, you've been to church your whole life. You've heard, and you do intellectually believe, but you've never received because you don't know or you haven't experienced it. So I didn't know any of this, and I'm intellectually believing, and then one night I, I broke down in my room at night. It was like I was showing all the bad things I had done. I cried. I asked God to forgive me and change me because I knew I needed to change but never had the power to do it. And I wake up the next morning thinking I just had a religious kind of sobby moment. But I was changed. Now listen, I didn't know what had happened to me. I didn't know there was anything else. But everything was different. I felt peace. I was nice to people when I normally wouldn't be. I wasn't impatient. And I wasn't perfect, don't get me wrong. But when you're really bad and rotten like I was, and you take ten steps in the right direction, it's very noticeable. People who worked with me were scared. They're like, who is this guy? I didn't know what had happened, and that's the premise of the book. And I went out on an expedition to try and figure it out, and I was shocked to find out that when you cross the threshold of intellectual belief and call on God based upon that belief, that factual belief, to save you, to change your life, to rescue you from death, and to have the relationship now, he does something to you. He does something to the very fabric and nature of your existence today. He puts the Holy Spirit of God in you. That's shocking for me. You need to go from no God, you don't believe in him, no one's ever talking about now God dwells within your existence, really? I just couldn't get over that. It just blew my mind, and yet I knew it was true. That's an experiential thing. And listen, so there is experiential proof for you doubters out there if you will take the step of faith. That's what it means when the Bible says you must be born again. It's a radical change in the very nature of your existence that takes place at a specific point in time when you give your life to Jesus. And you are forever changed. And it's something that is at the, the, the end. It's the very beginning. It's the beginning of a life of the relationship with the Lord. And you need to grow and grow up in that. It's not just the end and say, oh, I got my ticket to heaven. No, it's the very beginning. Now, when I began to tell people, told my wife, told my kids, the thing that got me was when I started telling church people, oh, yeah, I thought that they would say, well, we've been praying for you. We're so excited. Thank God we never thought you could be saved, like my wife said. <clears throat> Is that what I found? No. <laughs> They didn't know what I was talking about. They're sweating bullets. They're uncomfortable. They're squirming in their chairs. They're like, please shut up. I don't want to hear what you're saying. Why? You've got to understand I didn't have any idea. It didn't make any sense to me. Why would people who were attending church and, and hearing this not believe or, or be afraid of what I'm telling them? I didn't know. I called the pastor. I said, Pastor Rod, I think I'm going crazy. I've gone from no God to God living within me. He's real. He's been there my whole life. I've never said a whole word to him, and, and that's kind of weird. And now, Rodney, I'm telling people who are in church, and they don't understand what I'm talking about. What is that? And he explained to me. He showed me a verse in the Bible, one of the scariest ones. It says, in that day, 
Many people will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I served in church. I attended. I dressed up. I went to the dinners. I went to youth group. I sang. I gave. I tithe. And he'll say, I never knew you. In other words, there's very specific. In the Greek, that means never knew you in a personal, interactive relationship. I never knew you back and forth like you would know anyone else. It says many people, and those people call him Lord. They think that they're Christians, and they're not. Many. Guys, that's scary. Don't think because you grew up in church or in the Bible Belt that you're automatically a Christian. You are not. You are in danger of falling into this trap, and you need to examine yourselves very carefully. And right now, if that's you, God is working on your heart, and you know it. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a second to correct that. Today is your day to end that. You don't want to be one of those people. Maybe you're a skeptic. It's okay. It's all right to be skeptical. I was skeptical. But I've shown you that the evidence is overwhelming. You have my personal story, my wife's, millions of others throughout time that tell you that it's true. And there's a challenge that if you will take him up on it today, he'll put the truth in you. In you. Listen to what the Apostle John said. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen, and we have heard, and and declare to you that eternal life that was with the Father was manifested to us, that your joy may be full. He said, we saw him, we touched him, we were with him. And you have multiple other testimonies, and you put them all together throughout 2,000 years, Praise God, he did it, because it takes care of the two problems we started off with. No hope to hope. Biblical hope, the hope of Jesus, is a certainty of good things to come. Not I hope that it doesn't rain today, or I hope I go to heaven. You know that you know that you know. And in fact, in some ways, you're looking forward to dying so you can get out of here. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. He realized this is a messed up place. It's not supposed to be like this. It's a war zone. And peace. Peace with God because your sins are forgiven. Your your slate is wiped clean. You're no longer separated from God. Now you're reunited. That's part of the rub. That's the void you can't fill. You're not plugged back in. God's not living within you the way you were created to be. And then peace from God. Peace that God just gives you from being a believer and growing and knowing it's a fruit of the Spirit, you can cultivate it, that nothing that you do can give you. None of your hobbies, none of your money, none of your jobs, all that's dead. And now the great thing is you're free to enjoy that stuff. My life isn't that much different in terms of those kinds of things, but I don't rely on those things to fill me when they can't. So now I'm free to enjoy them. I used to use mountain biking and my hobbies to try and fill me and give me a sense of who I am and my identity, and it never worked. But now that I have the Lord and I get it from Him, I can just go out and ride and say, thank you, God, that you gave me this time to do this today. And you actually enjoy it more. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, 
he shall live and live forever. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he did it? I've shown you it's grounded in historical fact. I've shown you it's grounded in experiential living proof. And there's no other viable explanation for anyone in here except unbelief. Do you really want to do that? Maybe you're a Christian and you are a Christian. And you know that. But maybe you've fallen away from the Lord. Maybe you're not in that relationship. Maybe you're not growing. Maybe you're just in a church attendance mode. You can judge your your life with the Lord, one thing, by prayer. Someone said the biggest monitor for pride is how much you're praying. Ooh, kind of ugly, isn't it? Or how much you're in the Word. Because if you're not praying, you're thinking you can do it on your own. You're thinking you can live the day without God. I have found, personally, the more I grow, the more I know, the more dependent I am. The more messed up, rotten, down to the core I realize I am, the layers of sin revealed thoughts, motives, as yucky as it gets, the more I realize I need Jesus 13 years after being saved than I did the day I was saved. But that makes me grateful that he's taking care of it. But it keeps me coming back. I pray against myself. I wake up and look in the morning, you, you're the problem. (laughs) Lord, put that man to death, get rid of him and give me you. I'm not kidding. I do that. My wife's saying, yeah. (laughs) So who is there today? Everyone close your eyes. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Lord, who is in here who does not have the relationship with you? Who in here, Lord, are you trying to save today? There's no magic words. It's a state of your heart. Cry out to God now. Say, Lord, save me. I realize I'm not a believer and I want the relationship now. I've heard the evidence. I believe it. Come into my life. Give me the relationship. Come into my heart. I want to grow. I want peace. I want certainty of heaven, but I want to change. And I want to know you, the God who created me. I turn from my ways and I receive you as Lord and Savior. Who prayed that prayer? Sneak up your hand. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to point at you. Who in here prayed that prayer? All right. Maybe you're a Christian and you need to come back to God. Just pray, Lord, I want to get serious. You gave everything for me. I want my relationship back. I'm coming back. And he's with open arms that he's welcoming you back. I'm going to get in the word. I'm going to get in Bible study. And I want the relationship that you died for me to have. In Jesus' name, amen. I want everyone to stay in a state of quietness and prayer and reflection as the pastor comes out to close us out. Thank you. Remember as a child when the church service would near an end, they would have a thing called the invitation. We knew that the service was basically over. The fact of the matter is that...